I will tie these two together because they are really the same theme, the same subject matter flows through the first lesson uh, of 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is the book we would like to give attention to in our classes to come. And so I'm going to use this last lesson and its brief portion of First Peter we were not able to deal with uh, to rather introduce the same subject matter that Paul is concerned with in his second epistle to the Corinthians. So 1 Peter and chapter 5. The elders who are among you I exhort whom also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now, throughout this book we've had much discussion, you remember, about the sufferings that the believers were experiencing in Peter's day. These were Jewish Christians that had been dispersed uh, because of the persecution and Peter was writing to encourage them, give them direction as to how to walk and how to endure. And uh, he's closing the epistle with that same thought. And if you'll note, please, in chapter 5 and verse 10. Uh, but many, may the gospel of, I'm sorry, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, what Peter is doing is pointing to the maturity that suffering and affliction will bring. And he's using the Lord Jesus as our example. As John put it, as he was in the world, so are ye also in the world. Jesus said himself, if they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute the servant. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. So there are two themes that really follow here. First of all, the persecution, and then those general sufferings that just being in the flesh, and we'll look more at that a little later on in this lesson, uh, the, those, uh, uh, how shall I say, uh, use the word normal, for this condition that we're in right now before the redemption of our body, those normal sufferings that just being in the flesh and in the body uh, will cause to occur. Now I want you to come back with me please to Luke chapter 24 and I want, to, uh, want you to note that there is a kind of contrast. It really could be taken back further in the ministry of Christ than this, but I think this is probably one of the classic statements. Luke 24 and we'll look at verse 26, but we'll start a little earlier that there is this constant contrast between what we go through now and what we anticipate for that day. And the intent is not to magnify what we go through now, but to cause our vision and attention to be focused on the reward that's yet to come. What is going to come out of this? And remember the law of the harvest is, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so there is a principle of death that works in us in order that a principle of life might work in others. And again, we'll talk about that, not in today's lesson, but in lessons to come as Paul addresses it in his second epistle to Corinthians. All right, Luke then, chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 24, <clears throat> pardon me. And certain of those who were with us, and this is the conversation you'll recall between Jesus and the two on the road to Emmaus. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now that contrast follows all the way through the scripture. First the suffering and then the glory. Uh, the Lord Jesus, as it's addressed in Philippians chapter Two, you'll remember and one brother has referred to that as the from glory to glory to glory passage the Lord Jesus left his glory 
took upon him the form of sinful flesh, found in fashion as a man, uh, was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. So he's come from glory to glory. Paul, you'll recall, tells us that we are also moving, beholding the face of the Lord in a glass from glory to glory. We have, we have origin in the glory of God. We have destiny in the glory of God. And so that suffering that we're experiencing now is a part of that necessary work that God is doing in us in order to bring us in to his glory. So as it was with him, so it will be also with us. By the way, this is a kind of parenthesis but I rather like to watch these as-sos that follow through the Scripture, and there are several of them in different contexts. But as I was with Moses, for example, the Lord said, So to Joshua will I be with thee. Um, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul said, So walk ye in him. Those as-sos are very revealing as to what uh, the uh, work of the Spirit of God is doing in each one of us, in spite of the circumstances we may find ourselves in. And I'm going to preempt a part of the lesson in the future just to point out right now that uh, the sufferings of Christ that are visited upon the child of God have a quality of redemption. Now, I hasten to say this or I'm going to be called a heretic, but I, by anyone who heard me say that, I do not mean when I say a quality of redemption that they in any way deal with the expiation of sin. Christ died for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son cleansed small sin, nothing else will. When I use that term, I'm talking about how it affects others of the believers. You'll remember Paul said if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And I'm, I'm preempting what we're coming to in just a moment. So there is a sense in which we are experiencing what we're experiencing in the behalf of others as well. I think it goes without saying that a lot of the body of Christ has suffered in a way around the world that we never have in this country. Uh, we feel like we're being persecuted if we pass out of track and somebody sneers at us. You know, well... That's really pretty minimal, low on the uh, list, you know, of, uh, of the difficulties that believers have faced in so many areas. And so this is the theme that runs throughout the experience of the child of God as it was with the Lord, so it will be with us. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now come with me, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 1 and uh, remind us of a verse that we took quick note of earlier in these lessons, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. And for context, if I may begin with verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, reminding you again at this point, if I may, that salvation is seen in the Scripture in three tenses. I am saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. I will be saved from the presence of sin. And Peter's emphasis here is on that day when we will be saved from the presence of sin. And of this salvation, verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them was dictating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see that same theme, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, if I could bring you back, please, to our text for this morning, 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. And you'll see in just a moment why I think this is introductory to where we're going in Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, uh, 5 1 of 1 Peter. Uh, the elders who are among you, I exhort whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of 
of the glory that will be revealed. Now, what does Peter do in that text? Peter puts himself into the experience of the glory that's going to be revealed. He did not put himself into the sufferings of Christ. Christ suffered for sin alone. Now, hastening to say after that, most surely when Christ suffered, we died with him. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. And so the death of Christ was our death as well. We were perfectly and thoroughly identified in the cross, in the burial, and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But first, the experience of his shedding his blood for the sin of the world must necessarily be separate from us. We did not participate in that. It was something that was offered before the Father, and I'm going to get on a bunny path right here, I guess. But I must emphasize this again. Probably have said it in your hearing before. Uh, forgive the repetition. But remember that blood is for God. So often the blood, and remember, God's not nitpicking our terminology. I know that, you know. Uh, uh, again, if I may repeat, uh, if you're driving around in Mexico and you suddenly turn a corner on a mountainside and right in front of you is this great big truck and it says Diablo on the front and it's about to run you off the road and you holler, Jesus! Well, God doesn't say, now get your prayer right uh, before I'll hear you. Because the scripture exhorts us not to communicate with the Son, but to communicate with the Father through the Son. And that's another subject we've talked about in the past. We'll not get into it now. I'm equally concerned that very often the blood is pled over circumstances that the blood was not shed to deal with. I got your attention. <laughs> Lord, we plead the blood over this. Well, understand that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for one purpose and one purpose alone, for the expiation of the sin of the world. That was the one reason the blood was shed. We say, well, isn't there power in the blood? We sing that, don't we? Well, yes, but you've got to understand that there's a certain poetic license that goes along in poetry and music. I mean, you can't get, there's authority, authority, authority in the blood. That doesn't work. There's too many syllables in it. So you have to sing, there's power, there's power, there's power in the blood. Now, I recognize that we think those two terms very often be synonymous. They're not. Power is what God visited upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Authority is what the Father gave to the Lord Jesus. All authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore in my power. That's the essence of it. And so the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is for the expiation of the sin of the world. Now, what is the authority? The name which Jesus now possesses. That's really what Paul is driving toward in Philippians chapter 2. Because God hath highly exalted him, he's given him the name that is above every name. That at that name every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. Not to the blood, but to the name. So I said all that to say this. The blood was for God. God was the one that was angry. The blood is not for me. The blood was to satisfy God for my sin. And once God was satisfied for that sin, then he could give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through that name, the gift of the Holy Spirit affects that power. Do I need to explain that further? Well, just chew on it. All right. <laughs> now again, let me repeat. God doesn't nitpick our terminology. He meets us because our heart is right before him, not because our understanding is correct. There are a number of believers that are very, very, how shall I say, mixed up in their understanding about truth. And I'm sure the Lord could look at me today and said, Keith, you're a little mixed up in some areas yourself. And so the Lord doesn't meet us because we understand perfectly. We see through a glass darkly. We know in part. We prophesy in part. 
uh, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And so we are at best looking through a smoked glass. But in uh, insofar as God's attitude toward us is concerned, he hears our heart. But for the sake of the truth, we would point out that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is not to be pled over uh, people or, or uh, uh, vehicles or items or inanimate objects or any other such like thing. Let me give one other illustration since I've come this far, if I may. Remember when the children of Israel were about to come out of Egypt and the blood was placed upon the lintel and the doorposts of the house in the Passover night, that the scripture does not indicate at all that the devil was afraid of that blood. The destroyer who was about to go through the camp was not looking for blood. Blood didn't mean anything to the destroyer. The blood meant everything to God. And God said, I'm going to come through the camp. When I see the blood, I'll hover over you, literally. There's the word. I will hover over you. And I will not suffer the destroyer to enter into your house. Now, if the blood were there and God wasn't, the destroyer is coming in. And so the blood was for God. And once that blood is shed, and once God is satisfied, then all of the benefits of that blood come to me. And that's what then the Revelation chapter 12 is telling us when he says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's vertical relationship. And when I pause like that, that means by the word of their testimony. <laughs> so vertical relationship established, horizontal activity is carried on. But the seven sons of Sceva, you remember, didn't have, I feel like I'm preaching and not teaching this. The seven sons of Sceva did not have vertical relationship. They came into this demon-possessed man's house and said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Now, the second hand, <laughs> Jesus won't work. And, and the demon, <coughs> pardon me, the demon said, Paul, we, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And he jumped on him and sent them bleeding and torn. So first of all, there's got to be a vertical relationship and then the horizontal relationship through the name which Jesus now possesses because he satisfied the Father. All right, back to where we were, hopefully. So then, it is always now the experience of the apostle and the experience of we the believers to, to uh, enter into the glory that is to follow because he suffered for sin, we enter in to his glory and so back to verse 10 that we mentioned a moment ago but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while here are first of all the temporal benefits he will make you perfect that is mature he will establish you in his purposes for you he will strengthen you to the ministry and he will settle you to be satisfied I had lunch with a couple of preachers yesterday and we were talking about men we had mutual acquaintance with. He's from up in North Texas, and, and uh, we've known one another for a number of years. He's been speaking for uh, Brother Yarborough over here. And uh, we were talking about a lot of different people we know and what's happened to them and some that have kind of fallen by the wayside. And I, I just made the comment that uh, when the secular man, the unregenerate man, uh, comes to... <coughs> I'm sorry. Cedar. Comes to... Uh, uh, middle-aged crisis, that's the word I was after. When he comes to that middle-aged crisis, he buys a sports car, unbuttons his shirt down almost to his navel, and gets a gold chain. Now, a believer ain't going to do that. And so the believer's got to have some other outlet. So, so what the preacher does is he, he gets restless, and he wants to move somewhere else. 
uh, one brother commented to me one time when a lady gets in that circumstance, she sits down, clouds up, and rains. That was the way he put it, cries, was what he was saying, of course. But we're rather like uh, Israel in the wilderness. You know, we change our geographical location, but the problem is the difficulty comes with us. And so Paul wants, or Peter, I'm sorry, wants us to understand that God wants to settle us. Now, that doesn't mean by any means that everybody ought to stay in the same geographical location all our life. That's not the intent. The intent is that you are settled with what God is doing with you. And when the Lord changes his purposes with you, you can change with that because you're settled with his purposes. The psalmist put it this way. He said, oh God, my heart is fixed. I will rejoice and give thanks. That's a most interesting statement to me. My heart is fixed. When your attitude is fixed, you don't have to keep repeating phrases to convince yourself of something that you really haven't believed yet. Am I meddling when I say that? For example, you have chairs in your homes, and perhaps there is a particular chair that each one of you may sit in in the evening when you're reading or watching news or whatever else you may be doing, watching television, and you'll go to that chair and you'll sit. Now, now when you sit down in that chair, you don't first say to yourself, chair, you will hold me. I believe that you will hold me. I ain't going to make any difference with the chair. I mean, there's a broken leg on it. It ain't going to hold you anyhow. And so you have this fixed consciousness that that chair has held you and will therefore now hold you again. Oh, God, my heart is fixed. Why was his heart fixed? Because he recognized that God had cared for him. And because God had cared for him, he was fixed in the attitude that God was going to continue to care for him because God isn't fickle. God doesn't change his mind about you because you blow it. God isn't sitting in heaven trying, waiting for you to get it all right so he can bless you. God already knows you're not going to get it all right. But he's redeemed you anyhow. He's destined you for his glory. And so you can have a fixed heart about his faithfulness to you. Our God is faithful. Faithful is he that hath called you who will also do it. Faithful is he that begun a good work in you and who will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. So the faithfulness of God brings to us a recognition of that I'm sorry a recognition of the faithfulness of God brings to us a fixed heart and we become settled then that the Lord is the one who's really running our life I was sharing with one of the I am preaching I am but I'll stick this in since I'm here I was sharing with one of the young men the other day that came to me and he was feeling what I've heard from so many he happens to be a professional man but he's feeling what so many men have told me over the last months that they are just confused and fearful and they're despairing in their ministry they're discouraged and on and on they went now they're still doing what God told them to do but they're in this state of discouragement and I'm thinking to myself this is a plague it's a what do you call it when there's a lot of them going everywhere this is the epidemic this is an epidemic because I'm hearing it from everywhere this this discouragement and it comes it comes you can't we'll see that when we get into uh, that uh, second epistle of Corinthians the kind of kind of uh, attitudes uh, and reactions that we can have to our circumstances and uh, I thought my goodness some of these guys are despairing even of life and I tried to encourage this young man to recognize that God was working in him even when he wasn't conscious of it and this is what Norman Grubb uh, God love that dear man he called this the spontaneous you he said when Christ comes to dwell in your heart Christ is living his life in you it isn't that you have to convince yourself he is he is and it is this kind of attitude and I talked with Bart Brinkman about this too and we both agreed that this is something God has to work in you you have to come to an understanding of it by the witness of the spirit of God but this is the kind of attitude that when you come into the gas station and you filled your car with gas 
and you're about to leave, you forget to take the nozzle uh, out of the spout. I don't speak hypothetically. I didn't do it, but a good friend of mine did with my car. And he forgot to take the spout, and he just drove off, and, and he ripped that pump right off its roots and twisted around, you know, before he ever got stopped. And he went back in and they said, that's all right, it happens all the time, forget it, and just draw it off and let, they just sent him off. And uh, anyhow, I said, now that kind of experience, when you understand the Lord in you, allows you to say, Lord Jesus, why in the world did you do that? Are you there? No. But see, that's what we do. But we don't recognize when we say that, that it's Christ in you that he is living his life in you and allows you to say, Lord, why would you do that? You're in me. It's not I that lives, but it, it's Christ that lives in me. Now, that's why I say, you don't just decide that you're going to say something like that because you wouldn't mean it if you did. It's got to be the witness of the Spirit of God. But that man, Norman, has come to the place that he could say that. Oh, my, I could give you illustrations of that and won't take your time to do so but that's the settling that God wants to bring into us and and uh, he that suffered in the flesh we have this back in chapter 4 and verse 1 he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that is that all of the experiences that we go through make us recognize that sin is both unpalatable and useless uh, to to uh, digress from God's purposes for what purpose uh, the end result itself would tell us that it isn't a wise thing to do, but it never profits. But a part of our growth in Christ Jesus is to come to learn that. And you remember when the Lord brought the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt into Canaan. He said, now, there are all manner of uh, wild beasts in this uh, land that I've got to dispossess, and I've got a lot of nations in this land that I'm going to dispossess. But he said, I'm not going to do it all at once. He said, I'm going to do it how? Little by little, lest the beast of the field multiply against you. So what was God saying by this? See, all of those, and Robbie's made reference to this, all of those uh, nations that were in the land that they were required to dispossess, they were required to dispossess them, all of those nations are a figure of the enclaves of sin that are in our soul, the, the roots in our in our. Uh, uh, how you call that? Uh, not just soul, uh, uh, ethical, moral makeup. There you are. Uh, those things that we have to unlearn, as Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's a part of that renewing of that mind. And God said, I'm not going to get rid of all these things all at once. In other words, some of those problems that you come to Christ carrying, you're going to keep for a while. And God will deal with this one. You won't worry about those. He'll deal with this one. And then, once that's dealt with, he'll deal with this one. He won't worry about all these others. And we're worrying about all these others. And we say, oh, Lord, fix this. And he says, that's not troubling me. It's troubling you. But it isn't troubling me. I took it to the cross. It's paid for. It isn't going to mitigate against my purposes and you whatsoever. So don't you worry about that. We'll get to that. Let's deal with this one now. But... I want to tell you this in all godly sincerity. Most of us really, uh, of course, nobody here, but I mean, hypothetical, most of us. Uh, most of us want to get sin out of our life because it makes us look bad. 
Not because we're concerned it's grieving the heart of God, but because it makes us look bad. And God wants us to understand that all of it's already taken to the cross. All the sin of all the world, past, present, and future, was taken to the cross and nailed there. And you bear it no more. And he's cast it into the depths of the deepest sea as far as the east is from the west. All your sin, even what you haven't gotten to yet. And God says, now I'm dealing with these things because of what they do to you. Not because I'm worried about them, because of what they do to you. And he does it little by little. So, after you've suffered a while, the Lord shall strengthen, or establish and strengthen and settle you. And suffering in the flesh causes us to cease from sin. And all of those things become very unpalatable to us. And the only thing that becomes important anymore is recognizing the glory that's to follow. And I'll tell you, I, I'm certainly not unsympathetic with the hurt and the pain that so many go through, and many more than others, but we've got to understand that puppy love is real to the puppy. I mean, if one person is in a terminal case and the other one has a broken leg, both of them are feeling it acutely at the time, even though one is far more critical than is the other. So keep that in mind. It's real to the person that's going through it. And, and what the Lord wants us to do is to see, look, this whole life, it's just one uh, experience in survival to another. Some of you are older than I am a few years, and you've had a whole lot more experience with that than I have, and disappointment comes along with being a Christian. It's just part of the uh, character. But God has promised not to uh, uh, deliver us from, uh, what's the word again, difficulties, yes. God has promised not to deliver us from difficulties or even from tragedies. But he's promised that we're going to survive. That we're going to come out on the glory. And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so there's the settling of God. And I finally come to that rest and know, Lord, you're running things. I'm not. You're running things. All things are in your hands. Uh, in the words of uh, Jeremiah, a man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Isn't that encouraging? And so we need to recognize that we are where we are by the grace of God. And that we're going to get where we're going by the grace of God. The Lord will strengthen and settle you. All right. Now with those thoughts, if you'll come with me to 2 Peter. And we'll transfer our, our uh, point of discussion from Peter's first epistle to Paul's second epistle. And as we've already indicated... This uh, lesson is really going to be the end of one series and the beginning of another series because they do tie together. And just as Peter was concerned about what the experience of the believer is, and as sad as that is, I feel an illustration I wanted to give a moment ago, and I may bring it up again here. It's hard to get away from it. As sad as all of that is, yet at the same time, we must recognize the fruit that's going to be born from it. Uh, the scripture tells us that the Father was pleased to bruise Jesus Christ. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Isn't that an interesting statement? And if he experienced, I'm sorry, if we experience what he experienced, then could it not be equally said, it pleased the Father to bruise us? Isn't that interesting? He's saying, well, I really would like to avoid that if all possible. But when we come into his presence in that day, the fruit of that will be manifest. And our life is swifter than the weaver's shuttle. The fact of the matter is, uh, I'm thinking this, so I know many of you here are thinking this. It wasn't long ago when I was 18. 
And where'd all these years go? And the guy says, I looked in the mirror and I say, what happened to that young man I used to know? Because our life is swifter than a weaver shuttle. And so we have to keep in mind, not just where we are, but where we're going. Where's this leading us? I know I've labored that point. Come with me to Second Peter. Did you do that? You did that already. Now, um, the, there are several specifics. I mean, did I say Second Peter? I meant Second Corinthians. I'm sorry. Um, there are several specifics uh, and subjects in Second Corinthians that need to, be, need to be dealt with, focused on, so that we're not going to go through the book in a verse-by-verse -verse sense. But rather, we're going to look at those particular subjects, and we're going to pick up one of those today. And it follows the same idea we've been talking about. Uh, this light affliction, which is for a mo the moment, works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. We'll read that. All right, 1 Peter. I'm sorry, I'm going to hang up there. Fixation. 2 Corinthians. Thank you. Yes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all of Achaia. Now, I must pause here to point out some background information before we go on. The second epistle to the Corinthians is technically the third epistle to the Corinthians. If you'll look with me quickly, keeping your finger there, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I point this out because we need to remember that there's a lot of Christian literature which was legitimate. One of them, for example, the Epistle of Barnabas which was legitimate information from that time, but God did not choose to put it in the canon because it did not have the quality of eternal purpose. In other words, he did not inspire it to that end. It was good. It was right. It would be as though one of us would write a letter to another expounding on some truth that we learned from the Lord. That's all well and good, but God did not choose to put it in the canon because it did not have eternal purpose. And so Paul makes reference here in in uh, chapter 5 and verse 9, but let me pick it up. Well, 9 will do well. One, five, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, when Paul says, I wrote to you, it's obvious that that was his first epistle to the Corinthians. At least we can assume that. It might have been one for that, but time would not probably have permitted that. So what we have before us today is, in fact, the third epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. But insofar as the canon is concerned, it's the second epistle because this is what God chose to put in the inspired writ. Now, having said that, let me point this out. Some of you have heard me address dealing with uh, end-time events and the second coming and the signs that are coming with that second coming that uh, God deals with things in sets of sevens and we are on the threshold of the seventh millennium of man's existence on the earth from a biblical point of view. We have a thousand years from Adam to Enoch, a thousand years from Enoch to uh, Abraham, a thousand years from Abraham to the temple or Solomon or Christ, you could say any one of the three uh, because you're looking at round numbers here and a thousand years from uh, uh, Solomon and the temple to Christ and then two more thousand years nearly to date and we're on the threshold of the seventh millennium it is interesting to me that the epistle of Barnabas makes reference to this very thing the epistle of Barnabas on the other hand Barnabas was noting that it was 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and it was 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ 
And then he raised the question, would we not have then another 2,000 years before Christ would come and settle his kingdom? Now we're talking about some of these writing in the days of Paul. And so I think there's a real credibility to that line. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> there's a real credibility to that line of thinking. And, and God is such a God of order and uh, such a God of purpose and consistency. And that's why the Old Testament can be believed and embraced as an illustration of present-day truth because God is a consistent God. It's very exciting to consider that. But having said that, he did not choose to put that in the canon of Scripture. And therefore, I cannot quote that to you and say this is what God's going to do because God did not put that kind of authority on that writing. It was the feeling of Barnabas. I hope he was right. All right, having said that, let's come back to this thing. So here is then Paul's second appeal to the Corinthian uh, believers. And the Corinthians were a problem for Paul in a lot of ways. Some of this we'll pick up as we go along. But there was a segment in the Corinthians who had utterly rejected the Apostle Paul. And if I may say this without sounding personal in it, that is bound to happen to any preacher that's in a ministry for very long. There, I'll leave the denomination nameless. I won't even give you their initials, but there is one denomination of God-fearing people that just seem to trade preachers about every three or four years, you know. And it's <laughs> now Virgil. <laughs> yes. And and it is, <laughs> pardon me, it is that these factions rise up, and it's difficult for a man to hold the position as a shepherd when those things rise up. And I comment. To these brethren here the other day Ted and I have been here for 23 years makes you wonder how everybody's tolerated it but if you'll forgive me this this comment I believe that one of the strengths of the eldership and the ministry of this church is that you haven't had to put up with one person every Sunday and there's a point at which yes you, know, you don't know who somebody says we don't even know who's going to preach on Sunday morning let me encourage you to know we don't know who's going to preach on Sunday morning <laughs> ask Virgil or any of the other men that sat back there. But I think, with, and there are difficulties with that. You know, when we say you've got to stand in line to preach here, we mean that because we'd like to. But we've got to defer to what we think is more important for a lot of reasons. And there are a lot of factors that go into that. But uh, I do believe that it's one of the strengths of the ministry of the church so that there is a variety. And you don't hear from just one thought process uh, all of the time, you know. If there are two subjects I'd stay on if the Lord would let me, and he doesn't, fortunately for you. But there are two subjects I would stay on if he'd let me, the sovereignty of God and the second coming. And I'd preach them every time I got in the pulpit. Maybe I do. I don't know. Probably get it in there. Somebody told me one time, Keith, you'll get grace in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we would indeed. It's the whole council, part of the whole council of God. It's not the whole council of God, but it's part of the whole council of God. Okay, let's move on with the epistle. I'm sorry about that. Time's getting late. So, uh, grace and peace be from, uh, verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just make this quick comment, and I won't labor it more fully. Grace to you and peace. You'll never experience grace until first, I'm sorry, you'll never experience peace until first you've experienced grace. It is impossible to experience peace until first you've embraced grace. And it's such a heartache to me to hear people make comments as they have. I'm getting tired of this grace stuff. Because nobody's going to walk in peace before God unless they understand that it's all of him and none of me. That's the bottom line. 
And until I have gotten that through my head, that I have nothing that I can present to God that will make me acceptable to Him, I will not walk in peace. But once I've gotten that understanding, once I've realized that God is looking for nothing from me except sin, and thereby He's never disappointed, that God is going to totally and abundantly pour out the abundance of His grace upon me just because He wanted to, through the person of Christ, not until then, will I walk in peace. Verse 3. Now we come to the core of our lesson now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. And as we've said in your hearing in the past, mercy is God not giving to us what we do deserve. Grace is God's giving to us what we don't deserve. So he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And comfort's going to be a key word through this epistle. And you will notice as we read, we will come on such words as as affliction, anguish, beaten, conflicts, distresses, fastings, labors, perils, sorrows, stripes, suffered, sufferings, fears, tumults, weak, weakness, and so on. And it's because Paul is going to emphasize this God of all comfort that he's going to point to those things that he's experienced in his own life. And there is no epistle that the Apostle Paul has written that so betrays his own heart and his own experience as does this epistle. He just lays his feelings bare. He does so in part because of the afflictions that he's gone through in the ministry, which we'll talk about. He does so in part because of the rejection that he's experienced by many at the church of Corinth who would prefer Apollos or prefer Paul or, I'm sorry, not Paul, but Peter and so forth. And so Paul is going to emphasize this God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, remember what we were talking about in Peter's epistle? First the suffering, then the glory. You see that same theme there. First the sufferings, then the consolation, Paul said. That is both temporal and eternal, those consolations. And you'll notice that in verse 4, he's saying, look, as God comforts you in what you're going through, you can transfer that to others. You can explain the presence of God and the ministry of the Spirit of God to those who are going through uh, like difficulties. That's why, in my mind, it's so important for individuals, particularly those who are in what is commonly called full-time ministry, to, to minister within the sphere of their experience. Uh, if, for example, a man has come out of drug culture and God has wonderfully redeemed him and set his spirit upon him and anointed him and given him an understanding in the word of God, I'm not saying he couldn't minister anywhere. Most surely he could, but what is the most logical thing for him to do? To get into a circumstance, yes, when he could, when he could deliver those who've experienced that same thing. If, if an individual is raised in a, in a, a Christian home which is highly intellectual, and thank the Lord, there are a lot of those around. And, and his mother uh, has a Ph.D., and his father has a Ph.D., and he's destined to have a Ph.D. And he has this depth of understanding of the Word of God, and I know such ones like Eric Sauer and, and uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse and, and uh, uh, E.W. Bullinger and so yeah, men who wrote volumes and volumes in their lifetime. I'm trying to get out one book, and they wrote volumes. And I tell you, I read after those guys, and I say, Keith, what in the world are you doing in the ministry? It's absurd. Just get one of these guys' books and hand it to them and say, Here, read that. <laughs> I'll go fishing. <laughs> but here's a man. You wouldn't take him and put him in that 
drug culture. I'm not saying he couldn't. Do not misunderstand me. He most surely could. But that's not the place you need to put him. You need to put him in some elite area where he can minister to people who see that as a credential for what they're saying. It isn't a credential for what they're saying. The fact that he's got a PhD in theology or psychology or anything else is no evidence of the fact that he's not going to know God or know his word, but it is an open door. And Paul said, I have become all things. I am preaching, am I not? I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And when he uses that term, he's talking about their culture. So he fits into their culture. And so God is going to comfort us with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by him. And so we go through these experiences very often that we might be able to relieve those others who are going through that same kind of experience. There are some of you here who have physical, have had physical experiences that were life-threatening. And the Lord brought you through it. I've not had a life-threatening experience. Well, maybe if I had lived in 1910, I might have had a life-threatening experience, but medical science removed that threat. So, uh, But those who have had life-threatening experiences can then in turn minister to somebody. Virgil, if you'll forgive me, may I use you for an example? If somebody is about to go through uh, quadruple bypass surgery, would it be better for me to pray for him or Virgil pray for him? I mean, here's a man who's gone through it. Here's a man who experienced He's going to come out, and this man is fearful, and he's concerned. Am I going to make it through this? Well, I can go pray for him and speak the peace of God to him and ask God to minister to his heart, but somebody can comfort him with the same comfort wherewith we there, they themselves are comforted of God. Now, this epistle is going to follow that idea. Paul's going to go through all of these things, and he's going to emphasize that it is expedient for them that they see his blessing in this. Look at verse 6. For if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. In other words, you see me going through it, it'll encourage you when the time comes for you to go through it. The apostle talks about this in a little bit different context, about his imprisonment. And he said when he was going through that imprisonment, he addresses this in his Philippian epistle, you recall, and, and in his Colossian epistle, when he's going through this imprisonment, he was encouraging others that God was giving him grace and blessing, and the word of God is not bound. He said, I'm still feeling the liberty of the Spirit of God, even in, in chains. And so Paul said, this is for your comfort and your salvation, for it is your consolation and salvation. And verse 7, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings so also you will be a partaker of the consolation there's that same theme you see it from suffering to glory from suffering to glory that's it's a part of the law of the harvest uh, you sow seeds in the ground and it dies and brings forth fruit but the people go through sufferings and afflictions and they experience bringing forth fruit in the words of the psalmist he that goeth forth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him they that sow in tears shall reap in joy that was one of my mother's favorite verses so moving if I may move you down please to verse uh, 10 I'll move back up in a moment but I want you to read verse 10 first uh, 
God who raises the dead delivered us from so great a death does deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now there's a beautiful three point outline for somebody that wanted to pick it up and preach it. He's delivered us from so great a death through the cross. He continues to deliver us uh, by that same death and resurrection through our experiences in this life and we anticipate in that day he will deliver us. But what Paul is really emphasizing here and focusing on particularly in that last statement that he is going to be continued to be delivered not all of them were they were just a matter of going from point A to point B and all the trouble that he had just getting to Rome you do remember don't you I mean who likes to get shipwrecked who likes to float to, to, to an island on the debris of the ship and not knowing even what island it is okay. and get snake bed yes well then you see I gotta, I gotta come back to what I said earlier you know he shakes that snake off in the fire and he says Lord Jesus, why in the world did you do that? See, he's in Christ. And as a result of that, great awe fell on all. And a lot of were con uh, converted to the Lord. You, you say, well, what possible benefit could come out of ripping a gas uh, pump off its moorings? I don't know. Except the Lord teaches us to know, to trust that he's in us and everything's in his hands. You know, I have a certain fear and trembling because when you discuss these things, you're often tested on them. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful of what I do with that gas pump. <laughs> so he said, we were despaired even of life. And yes, verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves. What a lesson. But in God who raises the dead. Paul said, I don't trust in myself. This is not my ministry. I'm not doing this work. It's the Spirit of God in me that's doing this work. And so I have to just reckon myself as dead. And I remember a professor told us years ago, he said, brethren, take heed. If you have not already died for what you believe, you're not a witness. And the Greek word for witness is the word martyr. And if in therefore in your mind you have not already been martyred for what you believe, then you're really not a witness. Uh, you're a spectator. I put it that way. <laughs> All right. Now we want to look at some of these things. Now there are words that show up, and I want to note this contrast. In chapter 4, the apostle, we're going to take you over to chapter 4 if I may. The apostle is putting emphasis on the ministry, whereas in chapter 6, he's going to put emphasis on the ministers. Or to put it in another way, in chapter 4, the work. In chapter 6, the workers. But I want you to notice the affliction that the apostle is experiencing. In chapter 4, it's tribulation and comfort. And, and we'll begin with uh, verse 1 and I'll skip to verse 8. Because there are other things we'll talk about uh, at another time there. Therefore, since we have this ministry. So he's putting emphasis on the ministry and what the ministry brings. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Remember what I said about mercy. And Paul is putting emphasis. He could have said, as we have received grace, which he does in other places, the same terminology. 
But he says, as we have received mercy here, because he's focusing on the weakness of the flesh. And we'll come back to that in chapter 3. We'll have to see that at another time. But he's pointing to the fact that, that death is always working in us. That we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, which he said in the previous verse. So he's using, I'm sorry, not the previous verse, but in previous to what we're going to look at in a moment if I can ever get you to it. So he's emphasizing mercy because he's recognizing that God is using a vessel which is otherwise totally unworthy just because he wanted to. So as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 8 then, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. These are the great paradoxes of the child of God. You've heard that term used before. You need to make note of it, that this chapter addresses the great paradoxes of the child of God. He is one thing, but he really is another. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed. You ever been perplexed? But not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Did you see Paul in that state? Persecuted, but recognizing God is with him. Struck down but know that he isn't destroyed. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, but the Lord shall lift him up, the psalmist said. So verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus Christ may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death works in us, but life in you. Let me give you an illustration. A number of years ago, we used to have regular classes in Austin. After the classes, we were going to have lunch with the couple who were administrators of the school. And I was riding in the front with the husband, and the wife was sitting, and his wife was sitting in the back seat. And they were talking about a lot of the difficulties that they had gone through and a lot of the other believers uh, go through. And, and she, that was when she made that comment, which I've quoted in the past, I know God's got a sense of humor or else he'd throw up a lot. Well, in that context, she made this statement. Because I had said, uh, uh, well, we carry about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And she said, yeah, but I'm so tired of dying. She said, I'd like to live a little bit. And they really had been through it. Now, God had blessed out of all of that, but they'd really been through it, and, and they didn't know what else was coming because more was coming for them. But I cited verse 12 to her. So then death works in us, but life in you. And I made this comment. I said, you want to be careful to remember that the one who dies is not always the one who lives. And very often the believer is in fact dying in behalf of somebody else who is because of his death they're going to live. That's what I mean when I say it's redemptive. Now, let me take you to some verses very quickly to illustrate that. First of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26. This one will be familiar to you. There's doubtless the other one will too. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 and 26. And this is quite familiar to you. Uh, let me read 25. That there should be no schisms in the body. I was told one time that was really schisms. I like schisms. That there should be no schisms in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, 
all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see the redemptive quality of what you experience. The psalmist, when he was talking about the Lord honoring the king, he said the righteous are going to rejoice when they see that I'm honored. Uh, it, it's a thrilling thing to me when I hear of a politician who has a testimony for Jesus Christ and states it. That's a thrilling thing to me. Uh, when I hear these uh, sports, basketball, thank you. When I see these basketball players and, and uh, I'll get his name right now, Terry Cummings uh, for the Spurs in San Antonio, he's a Pentecostal preacher, uh, big guy. Great big guy, Spurs. The Admiral. Um, David uh, Robinson, there we go. And here's a man with a powerful testimony for Jesus Christ. And I hear him, and I, I rejoice. I say, oh, wow, how wonderful. Look at uh, who's hearing what he's saying. Isn't that thrilling? And so Paul is looking at the experience. One, one member is honored. We're all honored. It's a wonderful thing. We identify in that. It affects the rest of the body of Christ. But by the same token, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Now, uh, I, I, an obvious practical illustration of that, uh, if you drop an anvil on your big toe, your head is going to feel it. Quickly. Come with me to Colossians, please. Colossians in chapter 1. And here is the grand verse that addresses this whole uh, principle. Our time is just about up, and I do want to get this in. We never did get to chapter 4 and 6. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, what did Paul say there? He said, these sufferings I'm going through, I rejoice in because I am filling up in my flesh, in my body, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake. What a statement. He's saying very simply, that the afflictions that are coming upon him are really in quality redemptive for the rest of the body who isn't going through affliction. And the whole body is going to ultimately somehow feel affliction. And you all know as well as I do, let's just take the, the generation from, from uh, uh, the uh, turn of the century to now. Uh, we've known in this country very little affliction, very little persecution of any kind. I think it's coming. Uh, it's showing signs of it. But, but let's take those individuals, for example, who lived uh, from uh, uh, 1890 to uh, uh, 1950 or 60 or 70. Very little persecution in that. These people really didn't go through that kind of suffering. Paul says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions for the body's sake. All that to say this, what you're going through may be a vicarious suffering in the behalf of somebody else. Now, why might that be the case? And I just offer this as a thought. You know, this is lambology. I'm going to tell you that very quickly. This is lambology. 
But my suggestion to do to you is that God is the God of all mercy. That's not a suggestion, that's scripture. Since he is the God of all mercy, there may be a fellow over here who couldn't take it. When he says, I despaired even of life, he may have. And it just may be that the Lord, because of his merciful dealings, would put the affliction that that individual may have experienced or perhaps even should have experienced and give it to this other man. And Paul says, I'm filling up in my body a lot of that suffering. A lot of what Paul went through was for the sake of other members of the body that were not going through it. Something to consider. And it puts a whole new perspective on what the child of God experiences, and we didn't get to it, but we'll point out here now and emphasize it, Lord willing, next week, that it doesn't have to be because you're ministering. It simply is because you're living here. And that takes with it its own difficulty. As Paul will point out to us, particularly in chapter 6, as Paul will point out to us that we, we experience uh, natural uh, uh, tragedies just because we're going on with keeping on. All right. Let's pray together. Well, our Father, we pray that you'll bring usefulness out of our time together. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that by your Spirit you'll give us light and life and understanding and cause us to be able to say, Lord, my heart is fixed. I will rejoice and give thanks. Amen. Bless you. Bless you all. I thank you so much for being here. Thank <clears throat>